Let's turn to Joshua chapter 1, please. Joshua 1. Joshua stands alone on a hill just outside of camp, the camp of Israel, preparing for battle. And this hill is overlooking the city of Jericho. And he can see the people walking in and the and the merchants walking out and the guards stationed around the walls and some of the cattle over on the other hills. He can see all that. He could if he was looking, but he's not. Because in his hands, he's holding several battle plans, ways that they can go and attack Jericho, the first city of the promised land, and enter in. He, he's holding those plans, and, and internally, internally, these plans are tumbling over and over inside of his head, because certainty's kiss has not yet chosen the right one. He's unsure. Externally, as the plans are in his hand, they quiver nervously under the early morning breeze. By all accounts, he looks calm on the outside. But inside, he is raging with uncertainty, with doubt, and an inability to make a decision. He wants to sit. He's standing. He wants to sit. But his body is charged with so much nervous energy, he can't stay seated. It would rather pace back and forth to try to think and ponder and process and get the nerves out of him. But he can't let the camp see him like that. They don't want to, he doesn't want them to know their leader is scared out of his mind of what's coming up. Yeah, he looks fine on the outside, standing still, holding the battle plans, but inside he is a wreck. At the bottom of the hill stands a tall, strong warrior, his muscles filling out the glimmering armor that he wears. And across the front, it's clear that this is a commander of some sort, a very powerful warrior. And in his hand, he holds an unsheathed sword ready for action. And he stares up the hill at Joshua, watching Joshua intently. But Joshua doesn't notice him. Joshua can't notice him. Joshua is plagued by these feelings of uncertainty. He's unsure. His heart is besieged by insecurity and doubt. And maybe it wouldn't be this way if Joshua hadn't tried this very same campaign 40 years earlier. Maybe he would be quicker to make decisions and more confident in what Israel is about to do if he hadn't been part of the 12 spies that 40 years ago went into the promised land, came back and told everybody, God can't do this. The giants are too big. Let's keep going in the wilderness for 40 years. And maybe he would feel stronger, more certain about his position and God's calling in his life if only he and Caleb, the only two of those 12 spies, had been heard more properly and everyone would have listened to them because Joshua from the beginning said, no, we need this land. I believe that this is the land we're given. 
Yet they didn't listen to him. And now Joshua is not sure if these people who he's been given charge of, if they will listen to him as they are about to attack the very first city of the promised land. Are they going to be scared of the giants again? Are they going to trust Joshua? He is unsure. 40 years ago, 40 years is a long time. It is plenty of time for the cancer of insecurity to eat away at all of your confidence, bit by bit. 40 years of that eating cancer. That is approximately 14,600 sleepless nights where you toss and turn thinking and replaying all of the what-if scenarios. That is 14,600 mornings when you wake up realizing that you are one fragment of confidence less than you were the day before. That is 14,600 reasons that you need above anybody else to hear from God to be strong and very courageous. 40 years can do a lot of damage to one's confidence. But things have changed. Only a few days ago, Joshua's mentor, Moses, died. And now the entire camp of Israel and this campaign to enter this promised land is put upon Joshua. Which terrified him, even though he knew it was coming for 40 years, it still terrified him that the moment had come. But but then God said to him, Joshua, three things, listen up, you're in charge now. One, you are to enter the land. I know. Therefore, two, be strong and courageous. Be courageous to see this mission to the end. Yeah, so you will also need to, third, meditate on my law day and night. Things are getting better. They're changing. Joshua is feeling somewhat better. As he stands alone on the hill, he's trying to meditate on these things to gain that confidence to lead this people into this campaign. Things are changing. Just a few days ago, they crossed over the Jordan River from the wilderness where they wandered around for 40 useless, meaningless years. I mean, unless you're wise and you can reflect on them. Um, these years of waste, they come to the, the Jordan River, and when the priests step their feet into the Jordan River to go to the promised land, the waters part. God holds the waters of the river back until the entire camp of Israel crosses through. And when they do, they leave the wilderness forever and they begin their embarkment on the new promised land, the purpose and life that God has for them. And as they all cross through, then the rivers return to their banks and the Jordan River flows like normal. And everybody understood the significance of that event. Not only is this a new era, a new chance, a new time, a new season, a new age, a new period of success of walking in God, God's will, but it also was the statement to Israel and to all of the Canaanites that they were about to encounter that, that Baal, Baal, their God, the Canaanite God Baal, who was in charge of the Jordan River and all the waters of the land, that he was impotent to withholding Yahweh from keeping the waters from flowing. 
That as Israel crossed the river, Yahweh, God of Israel, was saying, I am stronger than Baal, who owns this river. I will control the river. I will bring my people through. Therefore, this land is mine, not yours, Baal. And that moment enheartened and enlivened and encouraged the faith of the people of Israel and even Joshua as they saw that. And it made the hearts of the people of the Canaanites melt like wax in the hot sun. And and, and Joshua sent spies. He sent spies into the city of Jericho to, to see what kind of battle plans do we need? What are the people saying? He sends only two this time instead of 12 because he knows what the other 10 would have done. <laughs> and the spies go and Joshua bites his fingernails as he waits. He can't throw enough rocks at enough trees because he just can't wait. The intensity of waiting and anxiety of what is going to happen, what are they going to say, are the spies even going to make it back in time, is eating him up. But then they come back with Good news for once. Good news that Jericho is in fear of Yahweh and the people of Israel. And not only are they in fear, but there are people in the city who would rather join Israel than fight against Israel. And they report about a prostitute. Don't ask about that, Joshua, but just there's a prostitute that wants to join our people. Don't, t- don't ask how we know her. Um, they, but she becomes one of the first Canaanite members to convert to the God of Israel and whoever she can get to come with her. And Joshua, as he's remembering these things, is standing on the hill and he's overlooking and he can see that red cord dangling from the window of her house, her house being in the wall of Jericho. And he's getting a little bit more hope. Things are changing because Joshua has just finished a Passover feast the night before. The first Passover Israel celebrated in 40 years. The first Passover was the one way in Egypt when God showed his miraculous power in delivering Israel out of Egypt and the angel of death passed over the people who had the blood of a lamb over their doorposts and the firstborn of Egypt died and that's when Pharaoh was broken and said, you guys can go, get out of my sight, don't ever come back. That's when God delivered the people. Passover was their meal of independence and liberty and the power of God's salvation or rescue. Um, They just finished Passover. And the day that they ate that Passover in the new land, the manna that there was their diet over here in the wilderness, the manna stopped falling from heaven. And instead, now they're eating off of the fruit of the land. Their tables are groaning under the burden of colorful fruits and vegetables and all kinds of figs and nuts and dates. They're all there versus the bland, plain manna that they complained about for 40 years. Now they're eating well. And and Joshua is trying to meditate on these things because surely things are changing, right? Well, Joshua has no idea how much he is going to change in approximately 40 seconds. Because that warrior who had been intently studying him at the bottom of the hill has ascended. Joshua hasn't noticed him. But when the warrior reached the top of the hill, he noticed him. And without thinking, 
completely betraying the fact that he has been wrestling with doubt and insecurity within, he courageously marches directly toward this warrior who is far more powerful than he is, pulls out his sword and points it at his face and demands, whose side are you on? Ours or theirs? I don't recognize you. And as he's holding the sword out, the This warrior doesn't even flinch. Puts out his finger and just moves the sword aside. Neither. And when he speaks, his voice booms so that the ground vibrates under Joshua's feet and his chest feels heavy with fear and awe and reverence and respect. And this warrior says, neither. I am commander of Yahweh's armies, and I have just arrived. And in that instant, Joshua falls face down into the dirt of the hill. And to the onlooker from a distance who doesn't hear what's going on, you might as well assume that this this warrior cast a spell on Joshua that made him just fall over. It happens so quickly. And Joshua, with his face to the ground, his mind whirling with so many thoughts about what to do with Jericho and how to get the battle plans properly aligned and how to get the armies together and how to go forward and are we going to win, are we not? Suddenly they're face down on the ground before this massive warrior who is apparently God's commander of his armies, the one who's actually going to be doing the fighting. Joshua is realizing in that moment that he, for 40 years, has seen everything completely wrong. He's thought for 40 years that life was about victories and defeat, about being right or being wrong, about being left or being right, about being up or down or inside or outside or light or dark, that life has been all about differentiating one person from another and from oneself and every experience, judging it and assigning it and labeling it based upon its reference to how you feel and how it affects you. Everything in Joshua's universe had been ego centric has been how do I fit into this and what am I to do in that and I need to know what this commander what side he's fighting on and what plans we should do here everything Joshua has tried to divide and conquer but now he's in the midst of a force he cannot reckon with and this force will not play his game it will not be labeled it will not be named it will not be judged it will not be assigned a role a side a place a plan a team Joshua must simply bow down and say I don't know what to do with you And that's when he gets up. He comes to this realization and he looks at the commander of God's armies in the face and he says, I am your servant. What shall I do? To which the commander says only, take your sandals off. For you are standing on holy ground. And that's when Joshua realizes he is not the first person to do so. How comforting would this scene be if you're going through that? That you are in the very same sandals that Moses was in. 
not just because you have his role, not just because you were appointed after Moses, but God appears to you like he appeared to Moses and tells you, stop seeing the world from your sandals and see it from my ground. We live in a world of either ors. Up, down, left, right, bright, dull, inside, outside, before, after. And this is how we make sense of a very complex world. We would be overwhelmed with information and knowledge and indecision if we didn't have the capacity to label things and put them in categories. It's a very good thing to do. Up to a point. You see, what we often do is we have to understand that I'm a person. Who am I? What am I? So we begin to define who we are by what we are in relation to everything around us. They're busy. I'm not. I'm successful. They're not. I am mediocrely poor. They are not. I drive cars. They walk. I am affiliated with this political party. So are they, and they are not. We often come to an understanding of ourselves. I am this personality type. I am an introvert. I am an extrovert. I am a Democrat. I'm a Republican. I am a Calvinistic Christian. I'm a Pentecostal Christian. I am a replacement theology Christian. I am a pro-Israel Christian. I am pro-life. I am pro-choice. All of these options we have. And this is how we make sense of ourselves and of the world around us. And it works until it comes to God. Because what we find out in Joshua's scene here is that God refuses to take sides. He refuses. Are you for us or for them? Are you a friend or a foe? Are you good or are you bad? Well, who defined good and bad? You did, right? Are you left or are you right? Are you conservative or liberal? Are you a Democrat? Are you an American? Are you a Republican? Are you a United Nationsist? I don't know if that, whatever that is. Um, are, but God doesn't play this game. Now, um, if we were to ask ourselves honestly, hey, does God take sides? Did God care who won the NBA finals? Uh, some of us may have our opinions about that and probably think, yeah, God probably doesn't take sides because he loves everybody equally. Um, but the funny thing is, when we live life, we expect him to take our side. And Joshua sees this commander and expects that he must belong on somebody's side, and I will determine what to do with him when he tells me what side he's on. If he says he's on my side, I will partner with him and see how I can use him. If he says he's on their side, then I will discover how to annihilate him this instant. 
And what's interesting is that this is Joshua's reaction. We see in the text that he doesn't blink when this figure comes up to him. This is in chapter 5, verse 13, by the way. When this commander of the Lord's army appears, Joshua just marches right on up to him. He isn't like, oh my goodness, so I, you scared me. I didn't see you. I better find my sword. He just comes right up to him. What business do you have here? I'm going to figure you out because I'm going to decide your fate. Reactionary. The either-or lifestyle is a reactionary, gut-instinct, reflexive habit we all practice. We are judgmental people. Everybody's judgmental. People say Christians are judgmental. Yeah, they can be. Everybody is judgmental. We, You have not gone through this evening without making at least 15 judgments about the people around you. And I don't mean, because we often talk about don't judge people, we often mean like this. They come in with tattoos. Oh, I shouldn't assume that they're in a gang. Like, okay, that's extreme judgment. But often it's, it's much, much, much more subtle. Much, much more subtle. His hair looks grayer than mine. I don't think he's really my type. Is that a sin? Is that like sort of sinful judgment? No, but it's a judgment. You're trying to categorize. You're trying to label. You're trying to make sense of the crowd. You're trying to move around. You made judgments about the food as you walked by. Do I want chicken? Do I want pasta? Well, I kind of had a lot of carbs this week, so I'm going to go with the chicken. But I'm trying to eat less meat, so maybe I should go with the... You're making judgments. When you tasted it, you made judgments. Hmm, salty. Hmm, not the best I've had. Hmm, this is really good sauce. I should ask what it is. Judgments everywhere. When the angel of the Lord, the commander of Yahweh's armies, comes to you, this is a moment when Joshua recognizes that judgment will not get him far enough. That I cannot take every person in every circumstance and see it in a self-referential way. How does this relate to me? Mm-mm. God is beyond that. And, and, and as God told Moses at the burning bush... Who, Moses asked, shall I say, sent me? And God in the bush said, Tell them that the I am who I am sent you. Now, you may remember this way back in Exodus. We, we talked a lot about the burning bush. I am who I am is not, I am whoever you want me to be. I am who you say I am. See, that's the way the immature, ego-driven person thinks, is everything is judged based upon how I see it, based upon my opinions, upon how I want them to fit into my world structure. But God's saying, I am who I am. You cannot play that game with me. And Joshua is realizing the same lesson Moses learned in a very different illustration. A warrior, something Joshua needs to become. God doesn't take sides. So we cannot label people based upon what side they are on either. I'm going to step on some toes. And I'm tired, so I, my filter is gone. So here we go. <laughs> no, I'm, but really, is God a Republican? If you said yes, you're not reading this passage. Now, I get 
These are complex matters. I know you're thinking, yeah, but there's some things that he would be for in the Republic. Okay, yeah, yeah, I get that, I get that. But see, this is the idea, people, is that we cannot just just reduce the world into you're that party or that party, or you're this type of person or that type of person. There is an infinite number of possibilities in between each extreme end of the spectrum. And we are not very good at letting people live somewhere in the middle. The minute you hear someone talking about gun control, you instantly say, oh, he's one of those liberal snowflakes. Wait a Are you sure he's way over here? Yeah, I'm sure he voted for Hillary. Um, okay. No, I'm pretty positive that he's for socialism. But he just said gun... No, no, I know everything. He watches CNN and NBC, SN, whatever, whatever, MSNBC. He watches all of those. He definitely was for gay marriage. I know it. I know it because it's gun control. Okay, but we do this. We totally do this. I might be exaggerating, but we do this. Um, It's possible that there are Republicans that want some gun control to an extent without like losing their amendments. We don't allow people to live in the middle. Why? Because they're divergent. They don't fit into the factions and the categories we want them to fit in. We don't let people be dynamic and real and, 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 and the possibility that they have insights that cannot be reduced to our media crazy polar, polarizing this or that. And Christian, we ought not to be of this world. We ought not to adopt the world's mentality of polarizing conversations, of classifying people to extremes. Because the more we watch the news, and I'm not against the news. I love the news. I just think we need good news. But um, the more you watch the news without thinking about what you're seeing and hearing, you're going to start reacting just like the world. And I'm sorry, but Fox News is not a Christian news station. So don't imitate it. Learn from it, but don't imitate it. Are you for us or for them? And God answers, no. No. I don't play that game. You may remember Jesus had the same challenge. Um, go ahead to Luke, if you will, if you know where Luke It's Matthew, Mark, Luke, the third book of the New Testament. Joshua asked the commander of the Lord's army, are you on this side or that side? And when Jesus was in Jerusalem on the week of his death... Some of the religious authorities of the day came to him and asked him in different words, but the same question. Are you on this side or that side? Now, we're going to Luke 20. Did I say that? Luke 20, verse 19. And Luke, being very kind because he's writing to the non-Jewish audience, kind of gives us some details on the background. It's very helpful. It says in 2019, the scribes and the chief priests sought to lay hands on Jesus at that very hour, for they perceived that he had told the parable he just said up in the previous verses against them, and they were right. But they feared the people. So in verse 20, they watched Jesus and sent spies who pretended to be sincere that they might catch him in something he said, so as to deliver him up to the authority and jurisdiction of the governor. So they asked him, okay, so they're trying to catch Jesus, right? They want to get rid of him, so they're trying to get him in legal trouble. So they ask him in 21, teacher, 
We know that you speak and teach rightly and show no partiality, but truly teach the way of God. You've got to hear what they're saying here. They are full on admitting that Jesus shows no partiality and speaks truth. In other words, Jesus has mastered the concept that I can't label everybody into an extreme opposite. That everyone doesn't fit neatly into two camps. They're admitting he doesn't show partiality. He isn't a judger or respecter of faces or persons. He doesn't bring that superficial labeling onto people. They full on recognize that and yet they're about to deliver one of the most manipulative kind of questions you can deliver on the face of the planet. Like, they don't even know, they, they know what they're walking into, but they don't even see it. Remember when Jesus said the blind leading the blind? Yeah. So they say this, teacher, we know that you speak true, you, you speak and teach rightly and show no partiality, but teach the way of God. Verse 22, is it lawful for us to give tribute to Caesar or not? Now, Caesar is the king of the world at this time. He's the emperor of Rome, the empire that covers all of the civilized world. And Rome's presence is very much in Jerusalem. Jerusalem is owned by Roman authorities. And the Jews hate this. Of course they do. The Old Testament prophets said that they were to have a king in Jerusalem over all the world. And yet that story is tragically the reverse There's a different king in Jerusalem, and it's not a Jewish king. It's not the son of David. It's one of Caesar's henchmen. And so the Jews aren't happy with this situation. You wouldn't be happy if some foreign nation began telling our government what to do every minute of the day, and we had to pay them taxes on top of our government. You really wouldn't like that. So should we, is it lawful for us to give tribute to Caesar or not? And so here's the problem. Hey, Jesus. Hi. Yeah, we like you. We know you're a great teacher. Okay, question. Now, if he says, yes, pay tribute to Caesar, he's legally safe. He's doing what the authorities want him to say. And all of his followers would say, oh, we knew you were one of those collaborators, one of those people trying to get money, trying to kiss up to the government, trying to get in with and cozy with the Romans. We knew it. And he would lose a lot of credibility. Or he could say, well, I will remain popular at the risk of being in trouble with the law. And then say, no, we shouldn't pay taxes to Caesar. And then everybody would rise up in support of him but he would be legally in trouble. And there would be reason to kill him because that's called rebellion. And the Roman government crucified people who did that, which happened anyway. But um, Jesus sees what they're doing. You're trying to label me into extremes. I'm not really that. And here's what Jesus is really good at. And I pray that we can be the same. Because he's about to walk out of an either-or question. Just like the commander of the Lord's armies said, no or neither, I'm not either of those categories, Jesus essentially does the same thing. And I would pray that we can do the same when people come up to you and try to make your face sound ridiculous by cornering you into a ridiculous question where you have to come down on one of two horrible options. That we can become wise and stop giving in to the closed-ended question and demand that people ask an open-ended question so that we can actually speak rather than be labeled. Jesus does this. He says, 
in verse 23, he perceived their craftiness and said to them, show me a denarius. So somebody presumably is pulling out a denarius right there in the crowd, right? They pull it out of their pocket and they flick it toward Jesus. Ding! Show me a denarius. And now he holds it up. Whose likeness and, and inscription does it have? And so everybody can see this denarius that Jesus just withdrew out of someone, one of his accusers' pockets. They say, oh, I've got a denarius. All right, problem already, but we'll get into that. They flip it to Jesus. Okay, so what do you guys see on this? And they answer, um, Caesar's. It's Caesar's head. He put his head on the coins, right? Because let everyone know who uses this money. You're using it in the goodwill and faith of Caesar Augustus, or the Caesar, whichever Caesar was at the time. Um, I think it was uh, Tiberius. Um, uh, So they say Caesar's. So Jesus said to them, Then render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. So there he goes, like, this is not, like, an either-or. This is, look, it all goes somewhere. And they were not able to, in the presence of the people, to catch him in what he said. But marveling at his answer, they became silent. Now, this isn't just Jesus gave a really clever answer. He did. But this was Jesus using their own tactic against them. So, are you pro-Rome or anti-Rome? That's the question. Are you going to be obedient to Caesar? Or are you going to be one of those seditious, rebellious people? And Jesus doesn't say either. He doesn't say either. You know what he does? He has one of them expose where they are by asking for a denarius. Now, where is this happening? i got to set the setting for you. They're on the Temple Mount. Okay, This is a Jewish area. This is where, remember when Jesus threw over the money changers' tables as he went into the temple and cleared house? This is where they would exchange money because they couldn't use the Roman currency at the temple because it had the face of Caesar on it, which would be a graven image, which God commanded Israel was not to worship graven images. So they couldn't use Roman coinage on the temple. They had to use Jewish coins. So there would be the exchangers so that they would exchange the Roman coins for Jewish coins, and then they would be clean money on the temple mound. Well, here's Jesus, and he goes, oh, you're really going to do this to me? Someone have a denarius? And without even thinking, someone says, oh, yeah, I do. One, okay, so he's carrying money. He's obviously not a peasant and poor. Two, he's carrying Roman pagan coins on the temple mound. This is a religious leader. This is someone who's breaking the rules because he doesn't want to pay the exchange rate. Making everybody else do it, but he doesn't want to do it. He's carrying an image of Caesar. So, yes, he's one, he's breaking rules, but two, now he's exposing which side he's on, isn't he? I carry Roman coinage into the temple because I am a buddy-buddy getting cozy with the Roman authorities because I care about prestige and power and position. Brothers and sisters, this is so good. Jesus, with simply asking a question, dismantled everything they're trying to do. This is the power of not letting people label us. And this is what can happen. You can look stupid if you try to label others. And I think Joshua learns a very, very valuable lesson before he leads the most important mission and campaign in the history of the world. 
Joshua learns that I must stop asking God to fight for me, and I need to fight for him. I must stop asking people to do my bidding and start directing them toward God's bidding. I must stop manipulating resources and the powers around me, and I must start empowering them and sending them forward. I need to get this people equipped. I need to stop being concerned with where I fit in this puzzle and just lead as God has asked me to lead and let them find their place, not me dictate that. Joshua is learning that the world is far more complex than good guys and bad guys. So, we... As we enter the promised land, your promised land, that place God has asked you to live and to serve him, that purpose he has for you, that place of fulfillment where your life is reaching its potential, your promised land, how do you enter that? How do you get into that? We're seeing how you don't get into it. We don't live in the promised land by constantly labeling and judging every circumstance and situation and person dualistically. We start with understanding that everyone is unique and everyone deserves a hearing and every situation deserves reflection, investigation to find out how is God using this in my life, not how can I get God on my side. So what Joshua is told at the very beginning is what we need to do. So go to Joshua chapter 1, please. And if you've been wondering why the five chapters, I covered all those in the story. Um, so if you read, you, you, knew you picked up on that. If you didn't, you can go ahead and read. It's fine. Um, Joshua 1 verse 2. Let's start in verse 1. Joshua 1 1. After the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, the Lord said to Joshua, the son of Nun, Moses' assistant, Moses, my servant, is dead. Pastor Mike showed us that last week. The end of Deuteronomy, Moses dies. So he's dead. Now therefore arise, go over this Jordan, you and all this people into the land that I am giving to them, to the people of Israel. So in verse 2, he's telling them, he's telling Joshua, God's saying, hey, it's your turn. Number one thing I want you to do, enter the promised land. Take this people in, because this is why you are born, Joshua. So he's going to continue to encourage him to do that. Verse 3, every place that the sole of your foot will tread upon, I have given to you, just as I promised to Moses. From the wilderness and this Lebanon, as far as the great river, the river Euphrates, all the land of the Hittites to the great sea toward the going down the sun shall be your territory. Translation, it's a lot of land. Now verse 5, no man Now, what he's going to tell him now is be courageous, be strong, be courageous, because to enter this land, you need courage, Joshua. So verse five, no man shall be able to stand before you all the days of your life. Just as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. Was God with Moses or what? You see what he did in Egypt and through the wilderness. This is courage for for Joshua. Um... I will never, I will not leave you or forsake you. Verse 6. So be strong and courageous, for you shall cause this people to inherit the land that I swore to their fathers to give them. Only be strong and very courageous, being careful to do according to all the law that Moses, my servant, commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right hand or to the left, that you may have good success wherever you go. So one, 
Enter the land. Take the people in. Two, be strong and very courageous because you're going to do it. I've given you the power to do this. I will be with you. You will do it. Just be courageous. Just go. And third, verse 8. The book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. Enter the land, be courageous, and meditate on the law. This, by the way, is the second of three times in which the Bible emphasizes this aspect of God's word. The first section of the Hebrew Bible is known as the Pentateuch. We just finished it. It's Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. The first five books of the Bible, they call the Penta, five, Pentateuch, or the Torah, their law. Um, you know how that, that section of the Bible starts? God speaking, his word bringing the universe into being. Like that. <laughs> the second section of the Hebrew Bible is known as the Prophets. Unlike the way we categorize the prophets, the Hebrews start the prophets with Joshua. He's what you would call the former prophets. Um, so the prophets start with Joshua and go all the way through the prophets you're familiar with, like Isaiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, Hosea, Joel, Zechariah. All of those prophets is a huge chunk of their scriptures. That's the second part, the prophets. And look at how the prophets start. By God telling Joshua to meditate on his word. The third section of the Hebrew scriptures is known as the writings. And this is where you have like Proverbs and the Psalms and not, they're neither prophets nor the history stuff. It's just these writings of wisdom and praise and inspiration. And you know, the first book of that, the Psalms, you know how the Psalms start? Um, To meditate on the law of the Lord day and night, then you'll be like a tree blossoming in all seasons. So all three sections of the Hebrew Bible begin with this emphasis on the word of God. And here Joshua is summoned to meditate on this. Now, I find this really important for us if we want to enter into our promised land is that we understand these three commands, these three commissions. He's telling Joshua, you have a mission and this is how you're going to do it. So you, brothers, sisters, friends, you have a purpose. This is how you're going to get to it. This is how you're going to enter it. This is how you're going to not label everybody into us or them. You're going to see the world in more complexity and be more useful. You're going to do it by entering into that call God has for you, which will take courage, which will be found when you meditate. Easy. It works better when you go backwards. So here's where we need to start. We need to start by meditating on the word of God day and night. Because through the meditation of his scriptures, we will then gain courage. Because meditation, meditating upon the scriptures enables us to see a world that is not so us versus them, but is much more complex, and that God is everywhere, that God isn't either at our bidding or their bidding, but he's working with whoever wants to work with him. We begin to see the world differently and it will give us courage to stand up in those more complex moments. We want everything figured out, labeled and understood. That's how we go forward with courage in our mind. But God is calling us into a much more mysterious and and bigger world to serve him. And he needs us to find courage in the unknown. 
If we're truly going to serve God, God cannot be someone who comes to our side at our bidding. Yep, you're on my team. We need to go onto his team. We need to go and fight for him, not him fight for us. Which means you're going to have to let go of certainty sometimes, and you're going to have to enter into the mystery of God's calling and of what he's doing, and a God who is the I am who I am, not the I am who I figured out you are, but the God who's beyond that, the God who's beyond my language, my metaphors, my descriptions, my theology, the God who is in all things. If I am going to follow him and fight with him, then I need courage to sit with that mystery, which is what meditating on the scriptures does. Let me clarify that meditating on the scriptures is not the same thing as picking apart word studies and reading commentaries. Those things give you certainty and answers. Believe this, here's proof. Meditating on the scriptures is where you allow the scriptures to talk to you. You're not talking to them saying, this is what it means. This is what it's saying. This is how you apply it. You're letting it talk to you. That's what happens when you meditate on the scriptures. And very simply, this is how it works in my life. You read the Bible and let it read you. And when you feel like it's reading you, you pay attention to what it's reading. And often a verse, a phrase, or a word will stick out. For example, it might be, For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. And I will choose to meditate upon that verse. What does that mean? I sit with that verse. And I just be with that verse. And any time my brain wants to start planning, wants to start dissecting, wants to start solving the world's problems, wants to start praying against my enemies, wants to start doing anything like that, I let the verse take over. Now there's a time when you pray what comes to your mind, but there's, that's not what meditating on the scriptures is. Meditating on the scriptures is letting the scriptures be your prayer and nothing else. It might be a phrase, I am the light of the world. It might be a word. Shepherd. You just sit with that word or phrase. Because you know what I found out? Is if all my prayer time is me going with my thoughts or my feelings, I am doing exactly what Joshua tried to do. God, everybody's against me. Be on my side. And if you think about it, that's often how our prayer life goes. It's the presumption that we're on God's side or he's on our side and we need to pray against everything that's not. The people that are against me, the people that are mean or the problems of the world. There's always a presumption that I'm in the right place. Unless, of course, you're repenting. That's a good thing to do. But when I meditate on the scriptures, I allow them to lead me. I allow them to do the talking. I allow them to bring me into the mystery and the weight and the glory and the majesty and the largeness and the undefinable, ineffable essence of God. And now I'm more prepared. That will then give me courage to go because I'm getting more familiar with the largeness of my God who's bigger than I can label. And then, when I feel that courage, I can enter. I can enter into that which God is calling me to be or do. 
And I wonder if so many times we keep ourselves out of the promised land God has for you and I because it doesn't fit our definitions or our preferences or our opinions. Because we haven't sat with his word and let it speak to us and change us. We haven't meditated on it. And it hasn't given us the courage to change our minds about things. Joshua, before, I want an answer from you. I want to know how I can use this. Joshua, after, yes, God doesn't take sides. I want to know how I can fit into that. And I don't like the fact I have no control, but I'm willing to go there. Result, Joshua gets the promised land. So we're going to see what happens as they go forward into the land in the upcoming weeks. Um, as the worship team comes up, we're going to take communion. And I want to encourage us to be people who won't just come to Scripture for answers, but also come to Scripture to just be with a God who refuses to tell you what side he's on. To be with a God who's saying, you come on my side. And then may he give you courage so that you may then bravely without looking back, enter into that which God has called you to do.